Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. Once again, I'm your host, Chris Wokalik, and I will be sitting down in one-on-one, hour-long conversations with current Pender Island residents to hear the stories that brought them to this alternative little island we live on, and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Today, I will be speaking with Bruce Butcher. Now, if you know Bruce Butcher like I know Bruce Butcher, you'll know him as the guy a few years back who did a performance at the community hall during a talent show where he had his rear end tattooed while he was delivering some slam poetry to the audience. We're going to get to hear Bruce talk about the behind the scenes of that infamous incident, as well as a heck of a lot more. We're going to get to hear Bruce talk about his 12-year career as a writer for various newspapers in Alberta before coming to Pender. We're going to get to hear about skydiving, demolition derby driving, and bull riding. We're also going to get to hear Bruce open up about his recent health issues with diabetes. Now, before we get this interview started, I just wanted to say that before, during, and after this interview, I had such a lovely time with Bruce. And it was a really wonderful experience. And I sincerely hope that you enjoy this interview as much as I did giving it. All right, everybody, here we go. Here is my interview with Bruce Butcher. Okay, so how's your day been so far? It's pretty good. Rainy day on Pender's better than rainy day anywhere else. <laughs> That's a good start, right? <laughs> I know. Well, it's not even supposed to. Like, well, it's it's almost <laughs> summer. I can't even believe it's raining. But uh, anyway, all right. Well, we're going to start uh, off with the uh, first traditional question here, which is, uh, what brought you to Pender Island? Same story. So many other people on Pender have the rat race. Just giving up on that whole rat race, big job business scene. I was a newspaper reporter in Alberta for. 12 years. I worked 50 to 60 hours a week, every week for 12 years. Had a week off my wedding, a day off my divorce, my only uh, vacations in those 12 years. And uh, shook my head and said, you know, it's got to be more to life than that. And that's a real sterile version. There was, uh, there was a divorce involved too. And I was a poster child for how not to handle a divorce. And um, they say, you know, don't make any rash decisions right away. Well, I made a whole whack of rash decisions. Uh, quit my job, wallowed around in depression for a while. Moved into Edmonton's inner city. Just did everything I probably shouldn't have. Did quite well. And did that for about three or four years. I realized I hadn't seen my parents. One day, just, it changed. Everything just kind of changed. Realized I hadn't seen my parents for about four or five years. Uh, they retired out here on Pender. Um, I didn't know Pender existed until then. Uh, I've always loved Victoria. Victoria is a beautiful city. I thought, I'm going to look for a job in Victoria. I'm going to go visit my parents. And I'm going to job search in Victoria. And I came out here and I visited my parents and I grabbed a job at the bakery on my second day here and uh, haven't really looked back since. Still haven't looked for a job in Victoria yet, actually. Okay, so your parents had retired on Pender Island and you came to visit them and that's what, what brought you here. And and I guess, how old were you when you uh, you made it to Pender? I keep trying to figure out how long I've been here based on my friend's kids and my friend's pets. And one of my friend's dogs turned 17 lately. So I've been here at least 16 years, but I don't think quite 17. So that would put me about 30, I was about 31 or 32 when I came here. Uh, that's a good guess. Second day here, you got literally, a job at the bakery. Literally second day. First day here, I just hiked all over the island. I just walked from one end to the other, just trying to take it all in and 
is basically doing a, a walking spiritual personal smudge. I just walked and smoked and up hills and down hills and I hit every beach access I could find. And uh, by the end of that eight hours, nine hours straight walking at a very brisk pace, I was happy. I was content. Everything I left behind in Alberta was left behind in Alberta. And uh, on my way back from that huge walk, I found my way right down to South Pender. I found my way down to Port Wash, found my way to Driftwood. And I saw the help wanted sign in the doorway of the bakery. And I thought, I could do this. Grabbed the sign off the door, walked up to the lady in the counter. Is the manager here? Well, I'm the owner. Thank you. I'd like to apply for the job. Can you start tomorrow? I sure can. And that was that. Right on. So had you ever done any baking before? No, no. Um, I'd managed a restaurant, put myself through high school, university, um, cooking. So I had a cooking background at least. And I'm good with customers. I've I've worked every job you can imagine, from a carny to a roughneck, a newspaper reporter to a carpenter. Um, I've done a lot of things in my odd years. (laughs) Okay. So... Just getting back to originally coming to Pender, though, it sounds as if it was a bit of a tumultuous time, and then coming here was, I guess, a new beginning for you. Yeah, it definitely was. I didn't, I didn't even realize it at the time. I just had to get away from the situation I was in. I had rented a small little bachelor place in one of the worst neighborhoods in Edmonton. I'd been there almost a year. Um, I'd left the apartment maybe eight times in that year, and never for like longer than an hour. Doing the Brian Wilson thing, lying in bed, not moving, not registering. Friends would drop by and feed me occasionally. One day, I'm sitting in my living room. It's kind of wallowing in my own self-pity. There's a knock on. There's not even a knock on the door. The door suddenly flies open. And these two suited males and this lady in a business suit comes marching in with a clipboard. I'm like, excuse me, what are you doing here? They're like, what are you doing here? I'm like, oh, I rent this place. They're like, how long? I'm like, I've been here for almost a year now, I think. Oh, um, we don't have your name on here. Okay. Uh, have you been paying by cash? I'm like, yeah, I've been paying by cash. Okay, well, we'll get back to you. And then they left. And I watched him walk down the hallway, and one of my neighbors had his head out the door, and I found out the apartment manager had hung himself. Um, he'd been collecting rents from people such as me under the table. Whoa. And uh, I knew him fairly well. We were in a very bad neighborhood. The whole bottom floor was uh, working girls, and they would run into problems with people at the security doors quite frequently. I don't know how many times I helped our manager, the you know, apartment manager, Kevin, um, escort people out of the security, the double security doors there, yelling and screaming, I want my money. And it's like, you're a fool if you give your money away. Let's get out of here and wreck the place. Cops are coming. No, leave. And have to escort people away. Um, I wore a lot of leather jackets. And I think Kevin just assumed I was something to do with bikers because he's always like, oh, you know, Bruce, we'll call your friends up if we really get into trouble. I'm like, yeah, okay. We'll call my friends up. Sure. <laughs> Bunch of extra porters. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you, you make it to Pender, and um, your parents are living here at the time. Everyone, uh, everyone knows my dad from the big white-haired guy walking the chow. They've had uh, three chows now on the island, big red chows, and they just uh, just on number three now, Maggie. That was be two years old in October. Okay, Maggie the Chow. Well, what what uh, what is your dad's name? Uh, Ken. Ken. Yeah, they're Ken and Val Butcher. Okay, so they had retired here, and uh, and then you just you came to the island, and that's interesting what you said about your first day, just spending the entire day walking around the island, smoking cigarettes. Yeah. Right on. <laughs> Up and down hills. Up and down hills. Um, yeah. Uh, if you haven't guessed by this voice, I'm a smoker. <laughs> um, and that's uh, one of the few vices I still carry around with me. And uh, yeah, it was just, uh, yeah, that's it was what I did when I first came to Pender. I literally, I, uh, I hit every beach access from here to Poets Cove. And then I hitchhiked from Poets Cove back to the community hall. There was some farmer's market going on at the time. And I, then I thought I was going back towards the driftwood, but it turned out I was heading towards 
for a wash. And I walked past the lumber yard and any little beach accesses before getting onto Port Wash Road I hit. I got down to the Sunset Beach area there and uh, realized that this isn't the way the driftwood. Turned around, started hitchhiking back, and it was a good solid eight-plus hour day of just straight walking, uh, plus some little stops here and there. I think all I'm told it was an 11-hour day of just absorbing and purging. That's that's actually really incredible because I, I don't think that uh, many people have spent their first day on this island doing that level of exploration. So what was it that drove you that day to to do that? Uh, parents were letting me smoke inside. Okay. All right. That's a good reason. <laughs> I had to go for a smoke. Um, I just wanted to take it in. I just uh, I wasn't planning on going that long. I think I told my mom I'd be back in like an hour or two. They didn't know how to take my arrival on this island. I phoned them. They, it was totally by surprise. I, sh- I showed up and I phoned them the night. It was actually June 30th of however many years ago that was. I'd just gotten off the last ferry at the Pender Island Terminal. And that's when I phoned my dad and said, hey, where do you guys live? I'm at the ferry terminal. My dad's like, what ferry terminal? Uh, the one on Pender Island? I, I'm right, right? It's Pender Island, not Pender Harbor. I was kind of confused for a bit. But dad's like, you're on Pender Island? I was like, yeah. He goes, shit. I'll, find, I'll get you. I'll, I'll pick you up. I was like, no, you don't have to, dad. He's like, no, I'll pick you up. It's, you're not going to be able to. It's a small island, dad. I can, I, can, I can find my way. No, you won't. Trust me. And he was right. I would still be walking around trying to find their place. <laughs> sure, I know. I was uh, getting lost all over the place on this island. People did the first few times. Okay, so you spend the entire day walking around. This is your first day, Pender Island, checking it out. Second day, you get a job at the bakery. What happened in that first year? How was that first year for you living in, like, uh, having different experience, obviously, completely different place to be living in? Yeah, it was... Um, I really enjoyed it. Working at the bakery, I was, suddenly I was working with the public again, as it was back in my newspaper days, but totally different context. You know, it's, uh, I like joking around with the new tourists coming in and out. And I remember I was working with, uh, she still works on the island, Nancy. We saw the lead singer for uh, Tragic Hip come in. I'm not up with the new kids' new hip music and stuff. And Nancy's all like, that's Gordy from the Tragically Hip, isn't it? Do you think so? It looks like him. I'm like, I don't know. Here, I'll find out. Uh, Mr. Downey, your panini's ready. And he turned around and came and got a sandwich. And I was like, oh, I guess it is him. <laughs> Saw Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell uh, within the same week, too. Yeah. Uh, someone said they just moved off island. And I was like, I don't know if that was them. Like, if so, Kurt Russell's like five foot four. Sure. Um, yeah, he's short, short little guy. And I was like, it was like a mini me of Kurt Russell. But um, I really enjoyed working with the public. It was neat. It was good. It was relaxing. It was no stress, no deadlines. I did that full summer. I think I was two months at the bakery. Then a, an artist on the island uh, offered me a job to work on his property. And I ended up working with him for almost three years, I think. And uh, yeah, that was my first year and a bit on the island. And working with that artist was uh, phenomenal. He just moved back on the island now, Vern Simpson. Vern Simpson? Yeah, down okay. on South Pender. He's a regular. He's coming in the bakery every morning. And uh, he's picking up this young guy he had working for him. Uh, Vern's got a little acreage down on South Pender on Gallon Road. Big Spanish-looking place, all adobeed up. And from the roadside, it looks like a little Spanish villa. But I didn't know this at the time. And... About three out of the four days of a week, um, this kid wasn't showing up for work. And one day, Vern just, you're here every morning. You want a job? I need a handyman in my estate. I was like, well, I'm really not very handy. You know, my background's got nothing to do with being handy whatsoever. In fact, that was kind of a detriment to my job. And he's like, you're smart. You'll pick up on things. And uh, I thought, okay, why not? I'm always up for something new. And left the bakery and went to work with Vern down on his little estate. And I was right. I wasn't handy. He was right. I'd pick up on things. Um, that was my introductory to carpentry. And that was 32 years old, I figured, when I came here. First time in my life I'd been paid to swing a hammer. First time I'd used a power saw. 
Uh, it's like, you know, that, that carried me through right up until three years ago on Bender, that kind of career, working tools and found out the reason Vern had hired me and approached me. He's nearly deaf and it's all tinnitus. So it's all the high range noises. He taught a uh, shop in high school. My low voice, he could hear good, really clearly well. So he hired me because he could hear me. Oh my gosh. Um, he had a studio in his basement and Vern's a very successful artist. He's a... Um, He's a creator of the Gassy Jack statue in Gastown in Vancouver, the big bronze statue. Wow. Um, there's a big mural in the front entranceway of the Red River Casino or the Red Rock Casino in Vancouver. Okay. Get the casino's name there, but he's got studios carrying his stuff from Florida right up to Vancouver. Very successful artist. There's been days where he's just called me in from doing my stuff outside and trimming a hedge and run in there and he can't understand the person on the phone. He can't hear him clear enough. So I'm brokering deals for him and- Oh, no, they want you know, X amount of dollars for these five paintings. And he said, oh, no, no, you tell them this much. And I'm like, oh, cool, this is neat. Okay, I'm power brokering. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Added bonus of the job you weren't expecting at the time, yeah, I'm okay. sure. I learned a lot about how they price art and artist temperaments and everything. It's, it was neat. It's very, very good experience. Cool. Just backing up to uh, talking about Alberta days, because just as we were sitting down getting ready to do this, you said, uh, oh, I have uh, so much experience in doing interviews with people. I did so many interviews through my <laughs> careers uh, working through uh, newspapers. And I just wanted to talk about that and uh, and hear you speak to that. So you spent many years working for newspapers in Alberta. Like, uh, let's, yeah. let's hear about it. Yeah, a good dozen years working mostly weeklies and biweeklies. One daily, a couple of entertainment magazines. It was a lot of fun. I was eight towns in 12 years. Incredible experiences. Even after 12 years, Things can kind of, you know, we've covered so many town council meetings, so many school board meetings, so many golf club annual membership meetings. It gets to you. Uh, so everything becomes a little mundane after a while. But to begin with, I've skydived seven times and never paid for one of them through the power of a press pass. Wow. Whitewater kayak down the Athabasca River. I went on a two-day uh, training exercise with Canadians Armed Forces out in Wainwright. Drove a car in a demolition derby, rode a bull in a rodeo, bungee jumped trained with uh, firefighters and all these things I'd never would have done at a regular job. And that was kind of why I wanted to be a newspaper reporter to begin with. Somehow I got suckered into being a, the principal photographer for most of the papers I worked at. I used to live by the police scanner. Police scanner in my car, police scanner in my camera bag, police scanner in my living room. If the wife was mad at me for carrying a police scanner around with me all the time, I would bring it to bed and cuddle with it. I always had a police scanner nearby. Really? Um, and the worst part of that is when accidents happen in Alberta highways, so generally in the winter and horrible road conditions, which led to the accident, and I've got to go out in the middle of it. I don't know how many times I've had to go through barricaded highways where the cops like see me and like, oh, Bruce, okay, drive carefully, and not letting anyone else by, and you're just white-knuckling it for a couple of miles into the accident scene. So what would you do when you would reach the accident scene? Would you just basically take notes and uh, or just observe what was taking place? Easy snap some photos. That's a sad necessity of newspapers. People like to, if you can get get that photo without showing the victim, without without drawing any conclusions by the, by the picture itself. That's kind of the key thing. The rescuers, it's not that they like the appreciation, but by showing a photo like that, it reminds people that the roads can be dangerous in the winters, and maybe it'll stop someone else from going out in freezing rain if they didn't have to, learning for the one photo in the newspaper. That's how we justify it to ourselves, at least. And uh, yeah, I've seen four or five fatalities a year for the 12 years. I remember the first one I saw was nasty, nasty. I was hiding behind the bus or hiding behind an ambulance, uh, sheltering from the wind after taking some photos from a car that had gone like 20 feet off the road. 
And I heard some rustling around the back of the ambulance. So I poked my head around just as they were putting the now deceased person on a gurney into the back. And uh, they don't pull the blankets up over their head when they don't think anyone's around. And it wasn't pretty. That's, uh, that stayed with me for a while. And after that, it's like, okay, I don't want to see it. I don't want my readers to see it. Um, I'm, I've got a good telephoto lens. I can stay 100 yards away and get close up on people's faces. But I'm going to be really careful where I point the camera. Sure. Um, and then you got moments, 7 o'clock in the morning one day, this lady in her early, easily in her 70s, there's a banging on the door. It's like 7 in the morning. Office doesn't open for two hours. I'm there because I'm a coffee freak. And uh, I, I can't talk to anyone until I've been up awake for two hours. And so I'm, what's that at the door? And I go and answer the door. And this old lady's like, take a photo of this. And behind her is her, it was an, 80, an 88 Accord that she had hit a moose five miles out of town. She hit a freaking moose. It rolled up onto the hood, onto the top of the car, down the back. Somehow it missed hurting her, caved in the roof of the car, staved in the front bumper. And she drives it five miles to the newspaper office. She doesn't go to the garage. She doesn't go to the ambulance. doesn't go to the police. She goes to the newspaper office to get a photo. Wow. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't shock you, okay? And she's like, oh, yeah, no, can you believe I survived? I drove that here? <laughs> wow. I've, uh, I've heard of some crazy destruction caused by moose being hit by cars. It's not something you want to do. No, no, no. I remember driving alongside a moose once and looking out and seeing its nipples, like, eye level to me, sitting in the driver's seat of my 99 Grand Am. And like, wow, he's going a good 50 right now. And I'm just going to slow down and let him pass or do whatever he's going to do. <laughs> Yeah. So you say that in 12 years, you worked in uh, eight different towns in yeah. Alberta? Yeah. So and I'll do a quick run through for anyone who cares or anyone who recognizes any of these names. Sure. Uh, Leduc, St. Albert, Athabasca, Westlock, Barhead, Mournville, Edmonton, St. Paul. Okay. <laughs> and so w what drew you to that? I guess as a teenager, did you think that you wanted to do that as a career or what made I, you? I knew I wanted to be a newspaper reporter when I was like 10 or 12, like before I was old enough to even understand all the, how the roles it plays in democracy and all that political stuff you start getting into as you get older. And Spider-Man was a, we worked for the newspapers. Superman worked for the newspapers. Sure. Uh, seemed like a cool job. <laughs> and so was it as cool as of a job when you, when you first got it? What aspects of the job were not what you were expecting and what aspects of the job were exactly what you were expecting? Yeah. I went to a Grant McEwen Community College in Edmonton. Originally went to U of A to study English and realized Easier to get a newspaper job just taking the college course, screw the university education. I didn't have the, the material wealth to really get dive into university or the patients. 80, 90 people to a classroom. I just, I can't do it. So I go stir crazy and bored. I need a cigarette. College, you can disappear. There's 20 of you in a class. And, um, and they prepared us well. Uh, when, I, when I got into the field, it was exactly what I thought it would be. I fell into it right away. I won awards in my first two years there. I won a CBC Investigative News Award. And it would have been 94. It was pretty much handed to me. It's not a, it wasn't a big piece of investigative work I really had to do. I, an unknown member of a local band came in with a bunch of old financial records. And I handed them over to the, my company's um, auditing team, the accounting team. And they came out with some really fishy uh, going on with this one reserve. School bus contracts for three quarters of a million dollars for a school bus contract that runs you know so many months a year for, I think it was for 14 kids. Um, and there's a $250,000 contract. Like, hmm. Half the band is uh, dirt poor. The other half is fairly wealthy. Did a big expose on that for the longest time. Half the native community in that area hated me. The other half patted me on the back. I had my tires slashed. And I got invited out to dinner. 
think it was like hit or miss. Either the people thought I did a really fair and balanced job or they thought I was really one-sided. Everyone's perception is their own reality. CBC News thought it was good enough to give me an award for it. So I figured I did a pretty fair job. Right on. And you said you won another award as well too early on? I won a few uh, photo awards. There's so many. Newspaper industry likes to pat itself on the back. The Alberta Weekly Newspaper Association holds a number of awards yearly. And uh, they'll have like best spot news, best feature photo, best front page photo, best layouts. I was in the middle of the rodeo area in Alberta, Wild Rose Country, big rodeo circuit. You can't get an award-winning photo at a rodeo. You don't deserve to be taking sports photos. Yeah, that was my very first photo award was for a bull riding photo. And he said at one point you got to you got to ride a bull. The going joke was that was two weeks before my wedding. So it was like my last chance out, right? If I'm in a cast, the wedding's off. This is my last chance to escape. But it was done on a dare. And because I'm just, I don't think things through sometimes, I guess. I used to go to a rodeo, take photos of the cowboys, run back to the newspaper office, develop the negatives, scan the negatives. We weren't quite at the digital age where I could get the same quality photos digitally as I could with film, but we didn't have to make prints. We could scan the negatives. So I scan the negatives, print off a sheet of what, I, what the photos look like, go back to the rodeo and try to get the writers I need so I can put the names in the paper below the caption. And it, they always give me a hard time. Like, oh, you call that a photo? And ah, you try getting a photo of your sorry butt on a bull for five seconds. And uh, yeah, one day a guy's like, next weekend, I'll take the photos you ride the bull. I'm like, yeah, sure. Morningville Rodeo? Yeah, yeah, I'll see you there. And uh, yeah, a week later, I'm on the back of a, I'm just about to go on the back of a bull at a rodeo. It had been ridden the day before. Bull's name was Copycat. Uh, it was a 1,500-pound bull. It had one horn going up one way, one horn pointing the ground. And uh, I'm just about to go into the little chute they just sit in before they open the gate. And the guy goes, now, watch out for the kiss. I'm like, the kiss? He's like, nobody told you about the cowboy kiss? I'm like, are you going to try to kiss me? He's like, no, cowboy kiss. That's when the bull jumps up, puts its head back, and it's ass forward. I'm like, okay. He goes, well, that makes you go forward into the back, into the back of the bull's skull. He goes, your face will hit the back of that bull's skull. You're following me. I'm like, yeah, I'm following you. Um, the bull's head's bigger than my lap, right? Uh, wider than my lap. And he goes, oh, yeah, people get their teeth broken, noses broken, face crushed from that. Just keep your eye on the back of that head. Don't let it hit you. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, now I got something else to worry about. And then the gate's open and I'm out. Wow. <laughs> so how long were you on the bull for? How long did the ride last? I was on for about seven seconds. Yeah. Um, I wasn't spurring as hard as the Cowboys do for points. I, w- I was just hanging on for life. Yeah. We got really close to this big black iron fence. And I'm like, he's going to scrape me off from the fence. Yeah, I'm bailing. And I just bailed off the back. And I did a good face plant in the dirt. And the, the rodeo clowns did a good job of luring the bull away from me. And I uh, figured I wouldn't do that again. <laughs> okay. And so that was the the one and only time on the back of a bull. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Congratulations to you. Like, I don't think most people out there have ever ridden a bull before. It uh, seems like a crazy dangerous thing to do. I, I have trouble saying no to things. Like, it's... Where else am I going to get the chance to do that? And I drove a car in a demolition derby. So I had a chance to get the Athabasca Advocate. What do we call it? The Adjuster was the name of the car. We put the Adjuster, the Advocate's Adjuster. It was sponsored by a local newspaper. It was the smallest car in the whole demolition derby. It was a 70, 77 Monte Carlo, little two-door sports sedan. And I was against all these LTDs and Lincoln Mark IVs and Torino station wagons. I'm like, oh, geez, I'm a two-door to four-door world. This is going to go good. But... uh didn't last that long. Car got crumpled really fast. Yeah. Um, hurt my neck and bothered me for about two weeks. And it was just a year ago, due to other health reasons, I was getting full x-rays and scans. And a doctor's like, so uh, have you ever broken anything other than your hand? 
He's like, oh, you saw that from the scan? Yeah, your hand and your neck. I'm like, my neck? I've never broke my neck. And he's like, oh, yeah, you got cracked down three of your vertebrae. And I forget what numbers he said, but three of the vertebrae right along here. He's like, well, I've never hurt my... The only time I've really hurt my neck is when I was in that demolition derby. Doctor's like, you were wearing a helmet? I was like, yeah. He goes, that would do it. I put the stress in those vertebrae with a whiplash motion. Oh, really? And I was like, wow, crazy. So I broke my neck in demolition derby and just didn't realize it. Crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. Well, it's interesting you telling those uh, dramatic stories about being in Alberta and having those experiences because I want to lead into uh, another uh, radical experience that took place on Pender Island that I think people listening should hear about because it's one of the uh, most amazing things I've ever seen happen on the island. And of course, it was the night that you were performing some poetry at the Pender Island Talent Show that took place a few years ago. And yeah, do you want to pick it up from there and, and tell the uh, listeners about this? That was, a, that was about five years ago now, I guess. Different stage in my life. Um, I was sitting at the bar, and the bartender was hosting this talent show at the community hall. There's going to be a sellout, 500-odd people, and uh, every day for a week. Um, I was living on my boat at the bar. I should clarify that. People don't think I'm at the bar every day, regardless. Not that I wasn't there every day, but I was uh, staying on my boat down there, and I'd pop into the bar and grab a coffee for going down home. And uh, every day, she's like, so Bruce, what are you doing with my talent show? 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 Literally, nonstop for a good five minutes, my first five minutes in the bar. For some reason, I found this cute, not annoying, and I thought, you know what, Nancy? I'm a writer. I'm going to read some poetry. I'll do a poetry reading. I'll do like an old beatnik poetry reading. And she's like, excellent. I knew I'd talk you into something. That was about two weeks before the show. And uh, I hadn't written a thing. The show was on a Saturday, and it was the Thursday before the show, and I'd almost forgotten about it. And she asked me if I needed to borrow a beret. And I was like, what do I need a beret for? She goes, you know, if you're doing a beatnik poetry thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, right. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, Yeah, let me wear the beret. And, and I suddenly I'm like, holy crap, I got to come up with some idea for this. I'm just going to sit there by myself on a stage with a cheesy French beret on and read poetry. I found out a friend of mine had a tattoo, uh, bought some new tattoo equipment and had it on the island. And the light bulb went off. And uh, I phoned a friend of mine, Morgan. And she, on the spot, agreed to do a stage show with me without really knowing what was going on. And uh, I told us a poetry reading. We're going to borrow Jason's tattoo gun. It'll be fun. Dress in a corset. Do you have anything? Go with the corset. And the big black heels. Or she's like, I got these black angel wings. I'm like, you have angel wings? They're six foot tall black angel wings. I'm like, oh, all right, this is done. Okay, we're, we've got a show. Um, I'm going to ask my friend uh, Twist to do some guitar. Okay, we got it. We got the show. So I took Friday afternoon off work because I was so stressed. Friday night, I finally ended up writing something. And that's when I came up with the whole idea of cutting the butt cheeks out of the rear pockets of a pair of jeans and having Morgan tattoo my butt while I was reading poetry on stage and my friend uh, played guitar. The whole mythology behind this was I'm really nervous about reading my stuff in public. So it, the pain in my butt was taking my mind off my nerves. If people didn't like what they were hearing, maybe they'd get a kick out of the humor of me getting in pain and all else failed because listen, my friend played guitar and hopefully find some source of enjoyment there. Right on. Yeah. And what, what kind of a tattoo did you get on your butt that night? Yeah, it's, uh, it was about three hours for the show, maybe two hours for the show. And uh, I told Morgan what was exactly what was going on. She's like, I can't tattoo you. I've never tattooed anyone. I was like, exactly. The owner of the machine was there to walk her through the basics, how to use it. I was like, that's the whole point, that you've never done it before. And, uh, well, I can't draw. I'm like, I don't know, do a stick figure or something. She's like, Okay. And I'm doing the whole stick finger, uh, stick figure, the little guy face like a hangman. And she just started to put her name on it because she'd been, I was still talking and she'd done this man. 
So she just started putting an M. I came so close to having a guy, a little stick man with the name Morgan tattooed on my butt. <laughs> that would have been horrific if I ever ended up in jail. For sure. Barely, you can barely even tell it's an M. Lindsay, who put on the talent show and convinced me to do that stage show, which I thought, I thought was people were just be mortified. I was swearing. I was going in this big anti-capitalist rant. Um, I didn't know how Pender would take it. I'm not that well known of an individual, a little quirky maybe. Ultimately, if I can ride a bull in a rodeo, I can stand on stage while getting my butt <laughs> tattooed. Um, it went over really, really well. And a couple of days later, Lindsay had t-shirts made. And you can get t-shirts that say, you are not a slave across the bottom with my stick man tattoo on it. Yeah, yeah. I th- they're still being worn around the island yeah, from time yeah, to time. I think I still have like 20 of various sizes kicking around. Okay, right on. Yeah, it was. The, I was there that night, and uh, I'll never forget it. It was pretty amazing. I remember talking to people after the show and saying, do you realize that we just saw a guy getting a tattoo in front of us on his rear end while he was reading some poetry and somebody was playing guitar beside That's amazing. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was super cool. And it, we, we talked about this earlier as well, too, before we did the interview, and you were saying that the reception that you received from people was overwhelmingly positive as well, too. I didn't hear a single bad comment that blew me away. I deliberately went out of my way to the first... 20 seconds of my opening was just me repeatedly saying the F word, right? That's bleeping it for radio audiences here. I deliberately, there's kids in the front row. I didn't realize that when I was started, but I didn't care. I'm, it's, I'm the last act. I'm going to offend. This is just a hint of what's to come. <laughs> um, I didn't really didn't know how it was going to go over. I, I attacked a lot of our capitalist norms, ideals, but yeah, it's, it went over great. I had people hugging me after. I had a lady go into her car and get me a bottle of homemade wine and give it to me. I had uh, one of our old timers come up and say she hadn't heard anything like that since the 60s and loved it. And I had all too many people walk up and slap my butt. <laughs> was it this cheek you got tattooed? Aye. <laughs> and subsequently, you, was it was it two more that you did at the... Um, I've done, done four at the community hall here. I've done five shows at Logan's Pub in Victoria over the last... It's all in the last five years, I guess. Uh, five shows at Logan's. Fourth community hall here, a couple of private parties. Um, there's a big music festival at a tulip farm in Saniston. I did a show at Club Rehab and Lucky Bar. Done right. my rounds. Haven't done it for a while now, but the worst one ever. And I've done different things. I've had Dr. Ho's electrical massage pads strapped to the sides of my neck and being shocked while I'm trying to read. Um, that's always a crowd favorite. <laughs> um, I've had the bottoms of my feet tattooed. My first foot was done here on Pender Island for the Tarmigan Arts Art Society. And I like to say, a true artist bears his soul to the audience. <laughs> As I was getting the bottom of my foot tattooed. I was waxing poetically when I had my hair removed, getting my eyebrows, chest, armpits waxed while trying to read poetry on stage. All of them. All of those. All those yeah. were removed. Wow. Um, the worst was uh, hanging upside down. I did that at the community hall here. I was hanging upside down by my ankles from the rafters at the community hall tr- for trying to read. Um, I had a horrible, horrible cold. It was a disaster. Uh, in fact, people say they really enjoyed the show, but I almost drowned <laughs> upside down and very disorientating. And that was that was the only time I came close to tapping out. The electric shocks I could go through, the pain in the, the tattooing on the feet was a little extreme. I ended up doing both feet, so I guess it wasn't that extreme, but I'm just not that smart either. I've had both butt cheeks tattooed now. The eyebrow waxing and that, nothing, nothing compared to that hanging upside down. That's So what would you say that you've learned from those experiences? Like, I guess two questions. What has driven you to go to those extremes within a performance? And what have you learned from doing those? You'll never be extreme enough for the crowd, right? 
Um, there's always be some joker saying, you know, oh, take those electrodes off your neck, put them on your butt, or something, right? You know, there'd be extreme enough to that people actually do listen. Like, I don't consider myself a serious artist. I'm not, I'm just going on stage, so I'm not, I'm too cheap to pay cover charge at the bar, right? Some friends' bands are playing at Logan's. I can get on the bill. I don't have to pay 10 bucks to get in. <laughs> I'm on the show. I'll do my little rant, but people come after me and uh, after the show and repeat stuff back to me like, oh, that line about even dogs dream of a life without a leash. I really like that. So like, oh, cool. Ultimately, I can just be myself. I can be as crazy Bruce. I can do what I want. And people accept me if, uh, you know, I'm not being, well, I guess I'm being offensive. But I'm not I'm not hurting anyone. I'm on stage doing my opinion in a comical, somewhat amusing way. And uh, people accept you for it. That just blows me away. Like, yeah, it's, it's hard to say. No, but I, I like that acceptance. That uh, that that was a uh, a feeling that you've received from the audience through doing that. I think that's a really wonderful thing to be accepted for expressing yourself. Yeah, in the oddest way possible. Like my years as a journalist, I can be a great social chameleon, right? I've I've interviewed prostitutes in the morning and politicians in the evening. Um, I've dined with Ralph Klein at night, and yeah, I worked with a teenage uh, hooker in the morning interviewing them, um, and I can fit into the different social scenarios easily. But to get accepted just for doing your own oddball off the wall, you know, Bruce being Bruce and having people just like, oh, oh, oh it's just Bruce being Bruce. And uh, yeah, I go into Logan's today and the, the sound man, the same sound guy who did my most of my shows there, he's like, oh, how are you torturing yourself today? I was like, I'm going to try eating the fries. He chuckles. Uh, yeah, it's, it's good. Okay. Well, when you mentioned you're going to try eating the fries, that's in reference to the medical situations that you've uh, you've encountered recently. And uh, maybe if you, do you want to talk about that right now? That was a great segue. It's, uh, I was just mentioning the fries at Logan's aren't that good. But no. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. Yeah. We go into that comfortably. It's, uh, that's another aspect of this island that's just accepting me. Yeah. Uh, my health came bad and fundraisers were done for me. And I was at the receiving end of the charity that is Pender Island. Yeah, that was a mind-blowing experience. Well, let's just back it up to the beginning. And uh, if you just want to talk yeah. about uh, what you were diagnosed with and uh, and then what happened subsequently. Yeah, I guess this is going on about two and a half years ago. Um, I suddenly started losing some weight and had some other little health issues. Guys at the job site were bugging me because every half hour I had to go for a bathroom break. And I used to have a cat that was diabetic. And uh, you don't notice the weight loss in yourself. I went from 170 pounds to about 130 uh, before I went to the doctors. I went to the nurse here on the island and said, you know, I think I might be diabetic. And she's like, what makes you think that? I'm like, I have all the same symptoms my cat has. Thirsty, I'm peeing all the time. Nurse kind of chuckled. It's like, well, most people don't get diabetes when they're 44, Bruce. Um, Turning 45, it could be hypothyroidism, pancreatitis, a couple other things she laid out. And it's like, but we'll send you out for blood tests. And I went out for the blood tests. And it was four days before I waited. Friday, I went to go see her. I didn't go for blood test until Tuesday. And Wednesday, I got a phone call saying, yes, Bruce, you're diabetic. Go to the Royal Jube. If you catch this ferry, catch this bus at this time, you'll get to the ferry, you'll get to the Royal Jubilee, and there'll be a nurse waiting for you in this room. And they had it all mapped out for me and called me at nine in the morning. Um, I'd gone from the 130 pounds on that, that Thursday when I saw the nurse here to 118 pounds. Uh, by the time I got to the Jubilee the following Wednesday. And uh, yeah, I learned how to give myself injections and read my blood glucose. And yeah, they were hesitating to let me go out of the Royal Jube that day. But uh, I was I found a friend's place close by. I was going to stay. So I went and stayed at a friend's place. Had to go back the next day. Next day, I down to 115 pounds. I'd lost three pounds overnight. Wow. And uh, I kept losing three pounds. Uh, I got down to as low as 103. 
from 170 pounds six months previous. Uh, I'm not just diabetic. I do it right. I'm an insulin-resistant diabetic. Uh, so it's a constant series of needles and shots. Um, I was really struggling trying to at 103 pounds, it's uh, not a very healthy Bruce. I'm about just shy six foot. I was a pretty solid 170. Yeah, so I ended up dropping to 103 pounds before some local pendurites knew about an insulin pod. They knew more about insulin pumps than I did. And it's a device you can get that you wear that gives you a constant supply of insulin. So even if I'm resistant to one dose, there's more. I don't have to check every hour and a half to see if the insulin is taking its job. This pump does it constantly for me. And uh, it's pretty cost prohibitive. And I got a phone call from a friend on a Thursday night, Rachel. She's like, hey, Bruce, I think I'm doing a fundraiser. Go over, fund me page for you. Uh, raise some money to get you an insulin pump. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Uh, okay, uh, I don't even know if I qualify for an insulin pump. I don't know what's involved in it. I'll get back to you. Hour later, another Pendrite phones. Bruce, I booked bands already. We're doing a fundraiser on Sunday for you. Deal with it. Click. And I was like, huh, great. Wonderful people. Uh, in three days, $8,200 was raised. And uh, I paid for the pump and... My first two months worth of pods. Right on. And so when, when you say that you're insulin resistant, what percentage of diabetics are insulin um, resistant? I've been told I represent less than 3% of diabetics being an adult going from healthy to type 1 needle uh, insulin reliant diabetic. Less than 3% of diabetics fit that category, adult onset such as that. And then to be insulin resistant is less than 3% of that 3%. Oh my goodness. And in the meantime, I've also developed celiac disease and possible Crohn's or just showing signs of Crohn's. So my health's just one thing to another to another. I, it's not uncommon for diabetics to develop celiac. And it's not just one of those, I'm not trying to be trendy. It's full on celiac disease. And just to back up a little bit as well too, did it take a while for the doctors to realize that uh, you were insulin resistant or was that figured out pretty quickly? Or? No, that, that took a little while. There was it's one of those things that they have to check every hour for so many days to see, or after each dose of insulin to see if it's taken or not, and then try to scale how much was like if I fought it off or if it just didn't absorb properly. Or when I'm down to 103 pounds, I have no fat. And when you give yourself insulin, it's absorbed through the lymphatic system. Um, and without having a lymphatic system with no fat cells there, is it that I'm resistant and not absorbing it properly or utilizing it properly? Or is it just not entering my system properly because I'm so darn thin? Uh, before I got the pump, I had to give myself my own injections. And the nurse showing me how to do injections, she's like, well, this isn't right. Or, you know, we gave you an injection an hour and a half ago and nothing's changed. And why isn't this working on you? And you're so damn skinny. And I have to come in on a really shallow angle with the needles that, you know, they don't normally do for a lot of people. And that's uh, a little tiny, tiny needle, but that's enough to get through with my tiny, tiny little layer of fat. And to this day, I obey my diet, so I take my insulin but sometimes my weight just starts dropping. Uh, is that the celiacs? Is that the diabetes? It's, it's all, we're still figuring it out. The celiacs diagnosis has been only four or five months now, I guess. So that's pretty new. How has all this changed your life, Bruce? Like, how has this affected you just to let people know? Yeah, this is a, I was a pretty independent person. I was always a rough and tumble kind of guy. I rode bulls and rodeo. Um, cars and demolition derby have always been kind of rough and tough. Uh, rough and tumble. Um, I've never been this helpless before. When I was 103 pounds going to the hospital and staying in a friend's place in Vancouver, I couldn't carry groceries upstairs. I wiped out going onto a bus, going onto a city bus, that little step up there, carrying groceries. I wiped right out, face planted right in front of the uh, little cash register. And the bus driver looks down and he's like, I could have lowered the bus for you. I, was, I didn't know you had to. Like, I didn't know I wasn't capable of taking that little step. I didn't have the leg strength. 
I'm an asymptomatic uh, celiac, so I don't show any. It took him a long time to figure out I was celiac, trying to figure out all the weight loss, why this weight was falling off me. Said so literally, I was losing three pounds a day. And I've dropped to 108 pounds twice, 103 once at my absolute lowest. And uh, it's all been exponential. Like once I hit below 120, you start losing your weight real fast. You can go from 130, 140 to 120 in three or four weeks, and then 120 to 108 in four days. And then everyone's scratching their head. Even my nurses and that refer to it as the, remember back last summer when you were dying? Like, yeah, yeah, I remember when I was dying. Aren't you much glad you're feeling better? I'm like, yeah, I am. <laughs> much glad I'm feeling better. And it's, uh, yeah, it's affected everything my diet. Uh, it's affected my relations to my friends. It's affected my f- friends. They're conscious of things now that they're never conscious of before. Like, you know, anybody just grab a bird? Oh, we can't grab a bird. And it's like, no, no, don't worry. I'll grab it. I try, I try not to get anyone to go anything out of their way for me. But inevitably, you know, pop over a friend's place and he cracks a beer and goes through you a beer and forgets I don't drink anymore. Uh, well, I shouldn't say I don't drink. I'll have an occasional glass of wine with a meal, but it's pretty rare. I think I've had like three alcoholic beverages in the last year. My parents, bless their heart, they, uh, my dad will see gluten-free and buy something for me. It doesn't matter that it's chock full of sugar. It's like, it's just gluten-free. It's great for them. And, uh, okay, you miss my diet and my diabetic side of that diet. And I see, don't, just don't say anything and, or vice versa. They, oh, hey, we made a lovely pasta for you. There's no extra sugars in here, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, ah, wheat-free pasta. Oh, and yeah, it's okay. I'll just go over here and have some grass. But it's nice, though. It's nice, though, that people do have that uh, element of wanting to uh, to help and to care, and, and, yeah. like that they notice. I, I was a vegetarian for many years, and I constantly ran into friends who were offering me meat on a regular basis who'd known I was a vegetarian for seven, eight, ten years or whatever, and they always forgot. But I always looked at it as like, well, this person's just trying to give me something. They're trying to offer me something. And I, and uh, it sounds like that uh, you have some people in your life that, that want to give and offer you things. Yeah, it's... um. Yeah, I've had a few friends, you know, I've had a good heart-to-hearts with them. They're like, you know, I've, I haven't invited you over a couple of times and we've had company because I just, I was stumped. I didn't know what to feed you. And I was like, I'll bring my own stuff. It's that, like, it's not that hard, but I guess it is when you don't know what to, you know, what to introduce to someone's diet. But it's like, did you have a salad, any kind of salad with your dinner that night? Yeah. Well, I could have just, you know, filled up on the salad. No worries. Um, well, yeah, but doesn't it make you feel bad watching people eat steak in front of you? I'm like, well, yeah, if they're not offering me a steak, like, what's, I can eat steak. There's no, it's not, it eats wheat, but it's not made out of wheat. And, and uh, that whole fundraiser was just phenomenal. It was a Facebook GoFundMe page, you know, organized by two guys. One guy I was staying with, uh, someone I can, my friend uh, Richard, I consider her family. And uh, these two ladies, one lady I barely knew, Judy Burek. She was, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, what is her name? Uh, Judy, Judy Burek. Okay. I shouldn't say I barely knew her. I was managing the marina at Port Browning and they had a boat there and there were clients. I'd known them for maybe three or four months and she bent over backwards to make this happen. Her and her husband are just wonderful people and $8,200 in three days. And the last day was at Browning, live bands all day, silent auction, hot dogs being sold, people doing haircuts for money. It was just phenomenal. I was, I was taken aback. I was just stunned. And at one point, I just kind of walked away from the crowd and sat back and just watched this unfold. And I was like, wow, it's just Actually, I was standing by the pool table, and there's a couple of guys playing pool. And they asked me what this was all about. I'm like, hey, what's this? What's the bands and everything? Or Sunday afternoon all about? I was like, it's about me. And the guy looked, and I was like, yeah, it's a, it's a fundraiser for me. This is all about me. I was like, holy crap. And so once again, I went off the deck to have a cigarette. And uh, I was watching everyone, and I went, no, it's not. This isn't about me. I'm lucky enough to be a recipient for all this. But this is about a community 
bonding. This is about a community rallying together for a cause, being proud of, you know, attaining a goal to help fight that cause. And uh, I'm just purely lucky. By happenstance, I'm on the receiving end of it, and I, I, I'm blessed to be so. It was a really neat to watch. That's fantastic. And and how has that helped you getting uh, receiving that money and um, being able to buy the sorry it was the insulin pump. Yeah, yeah, it's my little. As you can see, listeners, um, <laughs> this little insulin pump here that literally saved my life. Literally, I, I had it installed for two weeks, and my weight started coming back on. That I I, I, I dead stopped at one hundred and three pounds, and within the first day of having this pump, dated one hundred and three. The next day it was like one hundred and five. A couple of days later, it was like one hundred and seven. Um, in a span of a month and a half, I was up to 140 pounds. Um, and then I developed celiacs and, boom, and the weight started dropping off again. <laughs> but and you actually demonstrated uh, when you first came over how it worked for me. But uh, just to give a, uh, an audio explanation for the listeners, um, what do you have to do in order to to use it? Yeah, it's, um, there's a mechanical end and electronic end to it. Electronic end looks like a little cell, uh, some kind of weird cell phone GPS unit. And the mechanical end is a little plastic white parasite that attaches to me. Actually, no. I got that wrong. I feed insulin off it. I'm the parasite. But it's this little plastic uh, mechanical unit that has a reservoir, and uh, it's called a cannula. I like the word needle better, a little rubber needle that sticks in me and constantly feeds me uh, insulin. Right now, I've got it tuned to one unit an hour. Um, so if my body isn't accepting one of those units, there's more, it's constant flow of insulin. It's closer to how your actual body works. I think the human pancreas pumps out something like 9,000 units in an hour. Um, I'm getting one unit an hour plus what I, I adjust for meals. And that's still a lot better than no units in an hour until I have a meal, which is how most diabetics in the world deal with it. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, They talk to each other, Bluetooth. It's what this little mechanical unit tapes to me. And it's that tape that she builds spatials out of. It stays good. I've got bald patches all over me from where I've had to attach this little mechanical pump. Sticky. <laughs> stick stick it right on and that that actually is going to lead me now into uh, the second traditional question that we always touch on on this show and that's uh i know that you just described a lot of help that you received uh on the island considering this this issue based on this issue but i know that through an email that uh, you sent to me the other day that there was uh, somebody that you wanted to mention about uh, who's helped you on pender island and just giving you an opportunity to uh to talk about that right now yeah i have to give a shout out to you you asked me people at first Kept me on Pender, introduced me to Pender, that kind of thing. People made an impact on me when I first arrived here. And I'm not sure what uh, an East Coast fisherman 10 years older than me and uh, you know some snotty kid from the suburbs listening to punk music has in common. But me and this one guy on the island, Richard Wynott, right from the word go, uh, we connected. We didn't meet under the best circumstances. But within five or six hours of meeting, I was having dinner at his house. Within a month, I think his sister ended up having a crush on me. Uh, within four or five months, any job I had on Pender, I got through him. Um, I was dating a single mom on the island and thrust into this dad role when I first came on the island. Very foreign to me. It's, I barely take care of myself, let alone having to look after a child as well. And it was great, rewarding. And if I ever found the financial crunch, Rich would find extra work for me. No questions asked. He, he opened so many doors for me. He was the, he was my, he was my key to the community of Pender. Um, and I still to this day, I, I call him uncle. He's the only person in this world who's not a blood relative or a marriage relative that I refer to as a family uh, appellation. And uh, yeah, Uncle Richard, he's, uh, he's always had my back. He's always known when I needed someone to vent to or vent at. Or, you know, when I first got sick and was losing that weight, he pulled me aside and threatened to beat me up if I didn't stop partying. And 
I was like, I'm not partying, man. This is, I'm sick. Like, trust me. And he's like, well, I'm going to slap you around if you don't go to the doctors then. One of the two, you're going to get slapped. Get with it. And back to the time when I was dying, losing three pounds a day, I was staying at a friend's place that had a bit of a rap problem. Richard kidnapped me. He grabbed me. He's like, you're out of here. You're not going to get healthy in this place. Like, smell it in the air. You're gone. Come into my house. And uh, he's a former fisherman. He keeps his house ship shape. And yeah, it's, he took good care of me. It's uh, rare for someone just to open up like that. And, and be, once again, that accepting thing. Tenders for good or for bad is just taking me on. And I relish it. And that's why I'm still here. Right on. Richard, why not? Okay. That is that is the person. <laughs> now, I guess just like moving into the present right now, just asking a question. What uh, what are you doing to keep yourself occupied these days? What are you finding yourself passionate about or investing time in right now? Yeah, it's uh, investing time myself more than anything. Um, I haven't worked for a year, trying to get my weight back. And I've still got some other diabetic issues I'm dealing with, uh, nerve pains and stuff. But uh, with the right attitude, they all get better. When my weight drops. Um, I like to play hide and seek and dodgeball. You know, at 103 pounds, I'm a freaking champion. I can hustle any kid in dodgeball, <laughs> uh, hide and seek. You can't see me right now, can you? No, where did he spirit. go? I can't. Where, is that, where, Bruce, I'm just a big nose and a pair of shoes. I can hear. Oh, there you are. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Right. Um, you know, I'm saving a ton of money on soap with all the weight loss too. Yeah, I just try to take it one day at a time, trying to get my health back the best I can. I just started working at Southridge Farms um, at the store there a couple of days a week. Owners are wonderfully understanding of my work situation and health. And uh, one day at a time, just keep going. I'm writing a lot, trying to teach myself to draw. I guess at one point, I could be considered a painter. When I bought my boat, I made my down payment by selling six paintings. The only six paintings I've ever made. I'm thinking that's a pretty good run of, you know, 100% of the paintings I made, I sold. Wow. Um, so I should just quit on the head, but I'm going to try a couple more canvases this year soon. Okay, well, what, what in terms of your painting, what sort of style do you have there? What Are you using acrylics or oil? Yeah, or? Acrylics on canvas. No, I don't have patience for oil. It takes too long to dry. My canvases end up being about five inches thick because I, I paint over everything, over everything, because I'm really not that good. It's a very comic booky style. Anyone who's seen any of my tattoos, other than the ones on my ass, but they're all inspired by my own painting. Um, I've got this rabbit motif going on. Uh, I've got stuffed rabbits hanging from trees, stuffed rabbits being nailed to walls, uh, stuffed rabbits on fire. They're the paintings I've sold. Okay. So did you just pick up painting as an adult or was it something you did when you were a kid? Uh, just as an adult. is when I was uh, playing the daddy role. The little girl I looked after, Rowan, was an incredible artist. She still is an incredible artist. I uh, have some really latent talent there. So to encourage her to paint, I would grab a canvas and paint beside her at night so the two of us would paint. And uh, invariably, hers were a lot better than mine. I can, I'm very colorblind. So it's... Uh, Janie, the, the mom I was dating there, uh, she'd always get a kick out of it. It's like, Bruce, do you even know what color you just painted the sky in that painting? I'm like, it's blue. It's like, could be a type of blue, but <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> but um, yeah, for whatever reason, those, those paintings sold. <laughs> That's amazing. So did, did you sell six different paintings to six different people? Or? Um, no, one, one couple on the island here bought four, or bought three of them, sorry. And the other three went to three different people. Cool. Yeah. yeah, 100% sales in, uh, in paintings yeah. that you've done. And, it's pretty uh, remarkable. It's uh, close to $2,000. Wow. Six paintings. So that makes me think I should charge a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> should be making a lot more. Should be, should be doing that. More Either that, I'm also, it's a good thing I've lost this weight because I keep waiting for assassination bullets. So the people who bought those paintings probably have something planned to make the paintings double in value pretty soon, right? I don't know. 
do do they <laughs> if anybody knows out there i doubt it but anyway so and you you're continuing to write as well too because obviously it sounds like writing has been a, a big part of your life for most of your life for sure yeah and uh and what are you writing about these days i've got two stories that i've never finished that uh they've been ongoing for many years i vow one day i'll get these done uh and i, I viciously rewrite them constantly uh, one day I'm just going to have to sit down and just say, okay, done, Bruce, just walk away from it and let them be done. Um, other than that, I just, uh, I write little nuggets of gold, little turns of phrases, I like to say. It's, I had a newspaper editor once tell me, Bruce, I don't care what you're writing about. Strive to put one little turn of phrase, one little sentence, something in there that you're proud of. If you can do that with everything you write, you won't hate your job as a reporter. Right? The moment you start losing the ability to insert that little thing that puts a smile on your face, not the reader's, your face. That's, you know, that's when this job becomes sour. If you keep doing it, keep putting stuff in there that makes you smile, you'll love this career. And uh, yeah, I just take, sometimes it's just little observations. Sometimes it's, uh, I'll miss here a song lyric from one of my favorite songs and be like, when, and one day the light bulb will be like, oh, they're not saying eating chicken in the loo. They're singing eating chicken vindaloo. That makes so much more sense. But I'll take the chicken in the loo and I'll make something out of it. And I'll write <laughs> off on that tangent. Right on. That's some great advice that you got uh, about just trying to find that little golden nugget for yourself within within your work and to try to make you continue on. And yeah, uh, yeah. I, I've plagiarized myself so many times with those little, oh, I remember that golden nugget from that story. I can reuse it in this story. And then not in stuff I published for the newspapers, but in like my own writing. Yeah, I'm plagiarizing little turns of phrases here and there all the time. That's not plagiarizing. That's just reusing some brilliant material, though. That's just... Yeah. <laughs> It's yeah, it's, it's a recycling. It's, okay, recycling, yeah, yeah, recycling, recycling. Almost here. All right. Well, um, we're we're creeping up on our time here. I just want to throw out the last word to you. If there's anything that uh, you want to talk about, and uh, the floor is yours, my friend. Wow, if all these people, this what kind of advice would I impart? No, I just have to say thank you very much for the opportunity. This is uh, I, my story is probably nowhere near as interesting as a lot of other people's, and probably more interesting than some others. But uh, I appreciate you. Uh, Give me a shout and inviting me to uh to share. Yeah, for sure, man. Well, you know, like I think from the first time, if not the first time, one of the first few times that we met, it was probably on the disc golf course, I would say. Yeah. Both Bruce and I share a love of disc golf. Bruce has told me he hasn't been able to uh to play for the at least the last year yeah. for sure. But uh no, I remember meeting you for the first time. I was like, who is this eccentric guy? And uh, yeah, there was always a little bit of a connection between the two of us and and uh, haven't forgotten that. And it's uh, thank you for saying yes and coming in and doing this. I really appreciate yeah. that. You know, just uh, hark back to that real quick. I used to always think it's uh, it was a place, right? You're in the right community. You're in the right place. If you can just do yourself, be yourself and you'll know, get accepted. Um, and then I realized, no, it's accepting yourself for yourself and then others will accept you. If you feel like being zany, nutty, like, yeah, it's like we used to walk around with a megaphone for a while just whispering to people from 30 feet away. <laughs> if you feel like doing that and you're comfortable doing that and people accept it and see the humor in it or not humor in it or either way people deal with it. Whereas if you don't own it, if you don't accept it yourself, it's no one else is going to either. It's uh, it's amazing the freedom when you just be yourself. For sure. You know, some of uh, the most amazing people I interact with are the people who are just so uniquely themselves. And I greatly appreciate that. And when people are comfortable enough within themselves just to fully express who they are without fear of uh, being judged, it looks like, from the exterior. And uh, I've yet to get to that point myself, but I'm trying. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a nice place to be. You know, I'm not totally free of being judged, um, but those criminal charges never stayed. So, 
free as I can be. <laughs> as free as I can be. All right. Well, let's end off on that one. Thank you so much for coming in, Bruce. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, I'd really like to thank Bruce so much for being so open and sharing a ton of great stories with me during that interview. I loved it. And to honor that interview, I decided I'd come down to the William Walker Ocean Access Point at the end of the William Walker Trail. It's located on the South Island, just off of Canal Road, probably about seven kilometers from the bridge that connects the South and the North Island. And standing here on the shore, and the tide is out, and in front of me, I see Saturna with the sun on it. To my left, I see some geese coming into the shoreline. I see a couple sailboats heading into Port Browning. And I'm just trying to imagine what Bruce might have felt on his first day on Pender walking around going to all these ocean access points. I wonder if he came here. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate people who are taking the time to listen to these interviews. I've been getting a lot of positive feedback from people, and I really, really appreciate it. And for any avid listeners out there, I'm just going to be taking a short break. So I'll be back in three weeks with another interview. But I have 11 other interviews other than this one to listen to. If you have not checked any of those out, they're all really amazing in their own unique way. And I've been hearing from a lot of people as well, too, that they want to know where to find the podcast, how to get regular updates. And all you need to do on the Podbean site is that if you just follow my show, the stories that brought you here, you'll get an automatic update whenever a new one comes out. It's probably the best way to get access to the show without Facebook. And if you do want to share any episodes with people, if you're proud of what some people said about the island that you live on and you want to share this with people outside the island, by all means, please do. Uh, I have a pretty limited amount of people that have access to deliver the podcast to. I'm just using Facebook mainly. And if anybody wants to share it, please do. And also, Bruce had a lot of great stories to tell after our interview. So if you want to hear more what uh, what else went on in his life, I don't think Bruce would mind telling some more stories about his days in Alberta and other things from his life. So if you see that guy... Give him a hello and see if he wants to tell you anything else. All right. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time.